Hello everyone and welcome again to the PGR cast. Today with us is Daniel Gold, CEO and founder of Stratify, an app developing investing strategies for everyday investors. Daniel graduated with a master's in mathematics from the University of Bristol in 2004 and has a PhD in algebraic geometry from the University of Southampton. In this episode, we touch on transitioning from a PhD to running your own business, the transferable skills that you can bring from one to the other, and changing career paths post-PhD. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Daniel. Do you want to talk about your experience of studying at the University of Bristol? Absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, like a lot of people, I come from London originally, so a lot of people want to get away from home. So I wanted to move away from London and uh, decided to come here for a couple of reasons. It's, I had an excellent maths department, had great ratings at the time, and it's just generally kind of regarded as a cool town. So <laughs> I thought it'd be nice to spend some time here. Um, and I had a lot of fun. I mean, made some good friends. The course was good. The teaching was good. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just a, a great experience. Enjoyed being here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when was that? This was 2000 to 2004. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to do a pure maths uh, degree. Actually, um, I started off on an engineering course because I wasn't, like most people when they're going into studying, they don't exactly know what they want to do. So I thought engineering would be better for job opportunities. So I started off on an engineering maths course and uh, it didn't really gel with me that well. Mm. You know, I, I, from the course, I ended up enjoying the maths parts more than the engineering, and after a year, I just switched and decided, let's just not mess about, let's just do pure maths. That's what I liked, and that's mm-hmm. what I ended up doing for the rest of the time here. Mm-hmm. So you graduated in 2005 with a 2004. Master's? 2004. Yeah. With a Master's. And after your Master's, how did you transition onto a PhD? Um, so... It's a similar kind of story. I mean, I, the, I, I knew I needed a break. So, you know, four years of studying pure maths is probably enough for anyone <laughs> in one stretch. So I decided to take a year off, um, gather my thoughts and then figure out what to do afterwards. But uh, so uh, during that year, I was lucky enough that one of my friends from the university, his father was teaching in Sedba School in the Lake District and they needed someone to cover maternity leave. So I took that opportunity to go and teach in the school up there for three months. And it was an amazing experience. I, um, I was kind of thrown right into the deep end with no teaching experience. And I was also quite young at the time to do that. Um, so I don't think I was a particularly good teacher for those kids at the time, but uh, I put my best effort into it. But what was a great opportunity for me was, was just the school was incredibly sporty, so I got to run up the fells every day. So it's nice. probably the fittest I've ever been, and <laughs> so a lovely place to live. Mm. Um, and after that, I went off to a kibbutz in Israel and spent the rest of the year kind of in a farming community. Again, it was kind of a new experience, which is a really interesting one as well, because... I don't know how much you know about kibbutzim, but it's a very, it, it, they're set up as a socialist, communist, communist sort of society where everyone shares everything. And uh, most of them have become privatized, you know, just through the passage of time. But the one I went to was one of the last few remaining proper socialist kibbutzim. So 
they share everything. They eat together, they cook food, they share jobs. Like, they had... It was only a socialist kibbutz still because it was a very rich one. The poor ones had to privatise. Mm-hmm. And so, even though it's a very rich kibbutz, the owner of the, the top guy in the factory earns the same as someone doing laundry. So it's, the, the principles are amazing. And for me, it was just a nice experience. It was on the beach and, um, you know, you work from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. Mm. And the rest of the day, you're free. You can chill with the animals, go to the beach. Mm-hmm. So it was a nice year off. And then yeah. after that, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do for a job or anything. Uh, I knew I... Actually, I wanted to study more maths. Uh, I knew I wanted to do that. And that's because in my last year at university, I... Just putting myself back in that time, I had two courses that stand out. I did a quantum computing course and a logic course. Mm-hmm. And these are both um, pretty recent subjects. So, I, you know, they're both cutting edge, especially at the time. Mm. And I just about scraped through on the quantum computing, uh, but the logic I did much better. And logic is an unbelievable subject. Like, it's, I uh, could probably talk for an hour about that. <laughs> but um, just the, the, the kind of results that you can prove with pure logic, I mean, just to give you a flavor, I guess, it's all about deciding what the axioms of maths are, what the elementary truths are, and what you can deduce from that. So you can choose any elementary truth you want, you know? It could be all elephants or pink or whatever, you know? But, what they do in maths is they choose things which are self-evidently true and no one's going to disagree with them. It's things like, if you have a set and another set of objects, you can form a set of both of those. So it's things that you can't disagree with. Mm-hmm. And from these, you can prove some incredible things. Um, and what you can prove is that you can't have a set of axioms which give you a consistent and complete set of truths in maths. You always have something you can't prove or you have contradictions. And just this sort of broad approach to logic and reason I thought was incredible and I just wanted to be more involved in it and just to contribute something to Mm. the subject. Um, So I went off to do the PhD um, and I think like most people going into a PhD, you're not an expert in the subject. I just <clears throat> interviewed and was assigned a supervisor, and it was potluck, really. <laughs> um, I, it sounded like an interesting subject, and I thought I'd go for it. And it turns out to be a fascinating subject, so I was very happy with the topic. Um, so that was in algebraic uh, geometry. Right, which I guess is quite different from logic. Yeah, yeah. It's all about structure, symmetries, and, um, and topological spaces. Mm-hmm. But, so what attracted you about that topic? Um, to be honest, I think it was the, uh, the way the supervisor explained it to me. He said there were some interesting results we can try and prove in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like I said, I didn't have a deep understanding of that at the time. I just thought it sounded like something I could get into. Mm-hmm. It was like, mm-hmm. it's kind of an experiment, which I think is like most things in life. Yeah, I tried absolutely. it. <laughs> that worked out. Not everything works out, but mm-hmm. that was okay. And you clearly saw it through. I saw it through, yeah. yeah. And what's that sort of PhD like? Because it's obviously a, it's a STEM subject, but it's not one that has a lot of practical work or 
think it feels more in line with the humanities, and he spent a lot of time researching and thinking and, and working through literature. Yeah. So it's not practical, and I gave up on the idea of doing anything practical at the time. Mm -hmm. This was just purely out of interest. Right. And looking back in hindsight, I don't know if that was the right choice. I think <laughs> for me it was the right choice, but I could have gone off and got a job. But um, it's something I wanted to do. And even though it held back my career, it's something I achieved. So, um, sorry to interrupt there, but how long had you thought about doing a PhD? Um, I think it was in the final year of my degree. I just, you know, I thought the options are get a job or continue studying. Mm -hmm. mm. I thought it's the only opportunity I'd really get to do that. I'll just get it done now. Mm -hmm. And then... That's, uh, that's interesting. That's something that we've touched in previous uh, episodes on. Um, obviously, someone doing a PhD later on in their life who may have even chosen the topic themselves through experience versus doing it earlier on in your life when you don't have other commitments like family, a mortgage, etc. It wasn't so much about other commitments. It was more about the topic. Um, I think getting into pure maths later on, if you've moved out of it, is very difficult. Very good point, yeah. You, like, when I'm in the thick of it and understanding the concepts and the logic, it's, for me, it was the only time. Yeah, you know, I'm sure there's some gifted people out there who could get into it any time, but I'm probably not one of them. So I need, to, <laughs> I need to have that springboard, and I thought, for that reason, I had to do it then. So talking about a, a fresh mind, how did you find adjusting to a PhD routine after a gap year? So it was incredibly difficult, actually. It was, I, I don't think the gap year had anything to do with it as mm. such. I think it would have been difficult anyway. Just like the leap from, um, you know, my master's to research, it's something that you're not prepared for. Um, I can't really talk about other subjects, but I know in pure maths, you don't really have much conception of what research is because it's kind of all you get all you see in your studies is books which say this is true therefore this is true therefore this is true but you don't understand the process which someone had to go through to get to that mm. and it's just like lots of frustration and trying things and getting confused and not understanding and just you need to just keep being so resilient and mm -hmm. you know yeah, you've, keep pressing away You've touched on a lot of things that we've uh, discussed in the previous episodes as well. Resilience being one, uh, being confused, that's a new mm. word, but also very applicable. Yeah, and I think one of the comments from the earlier episodes was that if people knew what they were getting into with a PhD, they wouldn't start it. <laughs> yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, if I knew, I mean... <laughs> it's a miserable outlook on it, but... <laughs> no, I don't know, it, it, this is the thing. I don't, don't want to put people off, because it is, you are kind of pushing the boundaries of mm. knowledge. So that's worth the pain. Mm. But, you know, it is a lot of hard work. But, you know, I, I always think that if it was easy, it wouldn't be fun. Yeah. Nothing yeah. worth doing is easy. Yeah, so the fact that it is difficult and it's an interesting challenge is what, that's the real driver for doing That's the, the reward, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, of course, um, once you finish the PhD, I'm sure you see the experience with rose-tinted glasses once you're over the hump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can always look back and say, like, I, I struggled mm -hmm. and I've done it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I think the people who carry on postgraduate research and, and mm -hmm. I think they're kind of real heroes. 
Mm. But, um, so walk us through the timeline a bit further. What happens at the end of your PhD? I'm assuming you went through your Viva and you passed it. Yes, yeah. So, <clears throat> so towards the end of the PhD, I um, again, I was, I knew I didn't want to carry on at that point with studying. I'm, it suits a lot of people, but I just wanted to try new experiences and try different things. I always knew I'm quite entrepreneurial. So um, at the end of my PhD, I became aware <clears throat> that they were, they were going to introduce a tariff, so like an incentive in Israel again for solar energy. Mm -hmm. And because I had been there and I had some connections, I thought um, this could be an interesting opportunity. It's something um, I was discussing with my brother at the time. He actually came up with this, uh, he found this tariff and <laughs> told me about it and I thought this, this sounds like a good opportunity. Mm. Uh, so we decided to try and do this business. So it, it was a total experiment at the time. So even though I'd been living there, I didn't really speak the language. Um, so I had to go to a different country, different language, um, and just try and do something I'd never done before. Again, it's like the PhD, it's just kind of doing something difficult, a challenge, you know, because mm. I think that's kind of what life's all about, like <laughs> challenges and making the most of them. So I went there um, and I spent probably a year or so kind of getting my feet on the ground, learning how to talk to people, um, learning how this, the, the regulatory regime works and finding suppliers and a lawyer. I found a guy to work with me a local guy, so he was kind of the, the Hebrew speaker and he did a lot of the talking to, to customers. But in the end, actually, I found uh, where I was, there were a lot of uh, Anglo sort of people living there. Uh, so that kind of became my niche. And also Palestinians, so they, the Israeli companies didn't often want to sell to them because it was a small market and it's just you know, probably not their main market. So I found those as my kind of niches mm. and they worked okay. Um, they were your niche markets? They, yeah, those were customers. the niche, niche markets that mm -hmm. we could serve that other companies were less interested in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what was your product idea? So the, the product was selling solar energy systems. Uh -huh. So it's, um, it was quite a complicated thing to sell, actually. So these are roof-mounted solar electricity generating systems, which you put on the roof. So we had to find installers to install them. Mm -hmm. We had to import them from China. We had to get permission from the electric company, which is the regulator for our particular product, mm -hmm. uh, to, to install it and connect it to the grid. And this had to all happen within a certain time. Otherwise, the customer didn't get the preferential rate from the government. So it's quite a complicated thing to take on mm -hmm. as a first business. Um, but uh, yeah, it, like I say, it was like a struggle for a year or so, just learning to get my feet on the ground. But after we got the first customer, you get the second and the third and kind of the momentum started to gathers. take off from mm -hmm. that. Mm. And in the end, um, I was there for four years and we turned over, I think it was a couple of million dollars in total and we had four employees when it was at its peak. We sold some systems, we sold a lot of systems on cow sheds because they all had to be <laughs> roof mounted and cow yeah. sheds, there's a lot of cow sheds there. Um, sold one to a housing association and a lot of uh, off-grid systems in uh, to the Palestinian customers because they, they were more interested in off-grid. Mm. 
So it was really interesting. I got to see all the country, and it's an amazing country. It's really interesting because you got it's like such a melting pot. You got everyone close together. The food is great. Uh, you've obviously got all the tensions to contend with. Um, so it was a very interesting experience. Mm. But I didn't want to stay there long term. My plan was never to stay there. I don't think I actually had a plan to be honest. But I thought I'd go and start the business and see how it goes. I probably hoped that we could sort of turn it into a massive business and sell it. But after four years, the government started reducing the tariffs, mm. the incentives for customers, and so it got harder for us to get new customers. Um, so the companies that survive were the big ones, and we were a small company. So I closed it at the time. Um, and then moved back to the UK. Right. And then from the UK, where did you go? Uh, so that was in 2008. Mm. Or 2009, actually. So that was just after the... Um, financial, financial crisis. Crash. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so this was... Um, uh, there were a lot of... Um, so I'm just getting my timeline right. So I moved back <laughs> in 2012. So that was after the financial crisis. But the finance, I wanted to move into finance because my background, that was the most, kind of in London, the most relevant sort of career. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it, it, I took a job in the Tesco head office, it was my first job, and that was kind of in their analytical team, um, which is a good experience, you know, introduction to industry. You say your first job as if your company in Israel hadn't been a job. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, it's the first sort of job for someone else. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the job in Israel was definitely a job. It was a lot of work. <laughs> um, so I did that. Uh, that was, yeah, a good introduction to coding and, you know, the corporate world. And then after that, I moved over to Lloyd's uh, Bank because I wanted to get into banking. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to take a step back. Before you uh, talked about your company that you... Uh, funded and then sold in Israel um, and obviously sounds like an incredible success story for being your first company uh, with your brother. You said that you already knew that you were quite entrep- entrepreneurial. How did you know that? Oh yeah, um, so I think my first experience with that was when I was 15 or so. So I used to go skating with my friends in a skate park in London called PlayStation um, and it's just a lot of fun, you know, mm. just skating every weekend. And uh, I saw they built it under a, uh, under a bridge, like a motorway kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I live on the other side of London where that is, and there was a bridge. And I thought, why isn't there one here as well for people? <laughs> so I actually tried to set up a business to do that in my local area. So I put a lot of effort into it. I actually found all the documentation I put together in my mum's um, garage month ago uh, so I did a petition in the area I was asking all the locals if they'd like a skate park I spoke to the local planner I got responses and I did plans and designs I didn't manage to get it off the ground because I was sort of too young and inexperienced but I did a you know if I'm mm-hmm. biased even though I'm biased I think I did a fairly decent job putting it together mm-hmm. um, but yeah that was kind of my first mm-hmm. attempt and, and then going into your undergrad and your PhD, did you have this sort of entrepreneurial spirit still in mind or did you lay that to rest at that point? No, no, I did. I think I always knew I'd like to do kind of a business, mm-hmm. which um, I didn't know what it would be, but uh, I, th- I think that's always been an ambition. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And from um, so from all of the experiences that you've told, it sounds like you're a bit of a jack of all trades. How do you sell yourself in interviews for, say, a set of skill set that maybe you you haven't got yet, but you well, you said, for example, in the Tesco's job, you developed coding skills, but you didn't go into the interview knowing that. How did you sell yourself and your transferable skills? That's a good question. Um, I think, um, well, first of all, I try to have as few interviews as possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, for that one, they, uh, they were willing to accept that I would learn it on the job. So mm-hmm. I, I, I don't particularly view interviews as selling so much. I think it's just about being honest, tell them, tell them your interests, why you're, you're obviously interested in the job, that's why you're applying. And if you're not motivated, it's not going to work out even if you get it. So mm. I think you've got to start an interview from that kind of position. Um, so yeah, just being honest, tell them why you want the job, why you think you'll do a good job. And in this case, I told them I didn't know programming. It's something I want to learn. I have the necessary, relevant sort of mindset and background. You know, you've seen what I've done in the past. I can pick this up. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. So I don't find that uh, particularly challenging. It's more when they want to, you to have specific skills as a requirement for the job, then mm-hmm. you kind of need it. Otherwise, you can't get the mm-hmm. job. Mm. And how do you think that your PhD helped you adapt to all of these new situations? So moving from country to country, starting your own business, starting work for, some, for someone else? Yeah, I actually think it helped a lot. I mean, even though it's completely abstract and not related to industry at all, just the, the kind of the, the problem-solving skills you have to develop in your PhD, I think... I don't know if you can get that anywhere else. You know, it's just, it's pretty unique, mm-hmm. that sort of uh, experience. And also from talking to other people who've done PhDs, I think it's pretty common that everyone has, or at least develops that skill set. So when mm-hmm. you're looking to hire people, I know in the industry where I've been working, they tend to like people with PhDs for that reason. So they don't care so much about the subject. And typically with a PhD, it's not going to be a subject that's relevant for a job anyway. I mean, it is sometimes, but not, not so much in my industry. And they just like the mindset and the problem-solving skills and the ability mm-hmm. that you develop during a PhD. So I yeah. think, yeah, it definitely helps a lot. There might be a little bit of a divide between applied PhDs, which are very common in engineering, which both Matt and I do, and uh, let's call them theory or um, maybe just doctorates in the humanities where in in both cases you'd like to think you develop the same set of skills but in one case you're clearly geared towards um, an industry and that you develop the technical skills that are applicable to that one but it's good to know that you know if you do your PhD on one particular topic that doesn't and shouldn't close you to that topic of yeah, that absolutely. field of research. For and I'm just talking life. about my experience. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you are doing a technical PhD in a specific field, then you'll be very well suited to a career mm-hmm. in that field and it's going to help you a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just talking about kind of the path I went through. But yeah, I think what, it depends what job you're going into, but it definitely 
think, opens up more doors than it would close. And, and again, you're sort of pushing those transferable skills that you get from you know, most PhD backgrounds that give you something that employers are looking for. And would you say those transferable skills going forward, you've now started your own company again. Has the PhD really helped to build on that experience? I think the PhD probably gave me confidence to do this kind of thing. Because mm. um, I think, yeah, to go out into a subject which has been developed over hundreds of years and try and add something on top of it, kind of, you have to have a particular mindset. So I think I'm taking the same mindset with finance. Mm. That's been developed by some amazing people. And I'm trying to add something on top because I think. You know, it's got a different perspective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's that kind of helps you from that reason. It kind of gives you some credibility as well when you're talking to people. Um, I, I tend to not use it actually because I, I don't know. It's a bit of a personal thing. I'd like to build up the credibility from the product rather than anything else. But sure. I, I don't know. That's just a personal thing. I think people have different approaches. So you don't necessarily introduce yourself as Dr. Daniel? No, I never have actually, but um, maybe I should. (laughs) (laughs) When you transitioned from your job as an analyst to deciding I want to go into finance, so what drove that decision and what was the next step? Yeah, so I... I always knew I'd like to be in finance because of all the industries that I could get into, mm-hmm. it was the one that would probably have the most interesting maths and coding opportunities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd always, if I could have my pick of any job, I'd probably want to be in aerospace or something, engineering something really cool, you know, <laughs> like airplanes or rockets or engines. But uh, my skill set probably wasn't right for it. So, uh, yeah, from the options I had, finance was good. And it wasn't a bad option at all. I mean, there's some incredible maths in finance that challenges me to, to this day, you know. So there's, there's great models, there's great, uh, you know. I mean, what I'm in is in um, derivative valuations. And derivatives are all about trying to predict what's going to happen in the future with a certain financial instrument. So you have to model the behavior of that instrument over time, and that's modeled stochastically. So it's, it's a whole different branch of maths which people do PhDs in as well. Uh, but it has uncertainty and randomness, so it's, it's totally different mindset to logic. Uh, so I enjoyed learning that and applying it. And also the coding was a, a great transferable skill that got the opportunity to kind of upskill on as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to hear you talk about maths in uh, very abstract terms, because obviously the field Field, yeah, the field of mathematics that we look at in engineering is mechanics, which is arguably um, a lot easier to get your head around than, say, I don't know, probability or uh, stochastic, statistical, and I don't know. If that's... What I've learned is that every subject has a lot of complexity, so mm-hmm. it depends how far you take anything. Like in mechanics, there'll be things that just as complex as anything in pure maths. Mm. But pure maths is, yeah, it, it's it's more abstract, that's the difference. I don't know if it's more complex, it's just abstract, it's just a different way of thinking. You can't relate it to the real world. You just do it for its own sake. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's closer to art than anything, really. Because you just do it because the, the results you get and the patterns you see are artistic to a mathematician. So it comes down to your own personal interpretation and how you visualize that kind of work. Whereas, I think, like Claire is saying, with mechanics, is sort of there's one established way to to understand a mechanical problem. For yeah, example. sure. Otherwise, your plane won't be efficient, or if one out of the sky or something. Yeah. So yeah, there's <laughs> definitely a right way in that. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. in pure math, it's more down to aesthetics. Maybe I mean, there's also a right and wrong, but to appreciate the aesthetics is more personal. But it sounds that you definitely brought in your knowledge of pure and abstract maths that you gained clearly throughout your undergraduate and your PhD into the roles that you were applying for, like in finance as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that is part of the, the selling yourself in the interview, to tell people what you've done, the challenges you've had to overcome and mm-hmm. the skills you learn doing the PhD. Mm-hmm. And uh, rightly so, right? They should appreciate that you know, you're know you bringing a lot to the table when you apply to a job. Mm-hmm. So what was your first role in finance and how did you go from there to where you are now? So my first role was... Um, it was in valuation, derivative valuations. Um, <clears throat> so this is... Um, so th- th- these are contracts which are traded between financial institutions. So a derivative, that's, we're probably not a finance podcast, so <laughs> these are a financial product which trade, uh, trades uh, with a price linked to something else in the market. So you can have like a floating rate bond or something which pays a coupon depending on, it could be the interest rate or the inflation rate at the time. So it changes over time. Mm. So then you have valuations of these which change constantly. You know, the, the underlying instruments in the market change, therefore your derivative valuation changes. And they're not all simple things like a bond. You can have things like options, which depend on the future expectation of that underlying rate. So you have to model the underlying, you have to model the product, work out the price, mm-hmm. and then the bank will have to either you know, hold capital because they are the valuation is lower than they bought it for, or higher. They may have to post it because it's higher than the it was originally. Mm-hmm. So it's a constant exercise in making sure the valuation is correct. It's not only for the bank's purposes; also the regulator requires them to do this checking. So I was in a team performing those independent valuations, and then. Um, I moved over to another team which is more responsible for checking the pricing models. So that's more kind of intensive coding and a bit more mathematical. And I wanted to move there because it's just more using my skill set. My long-term goal has always been to do this A business though. Um, I didn't know what to do. So I was kind of just doing my job until I figured out something to do. so I think it was back in 2015, I started investing in stocks in the, you know, just on a personal level. Mm-hmm. And I started analyzing the market to see what were good investments and what were not good investments. Um, so I was building models to sort of building strategies, basically the investment strategies to work out which stocks to buy. And 
what I was building was pretty much replicating what is done in the investment banking space for professional clients. So I started talking to people in that space and understanding how they do it and adapting my approach and trying to replicate it as much as possible. And I became aware that what I built could help other people and it could be packaged up into an app and made available. And I'm not the first person to have this idea by a long way, right? Lots of people have done this before. Um, but they've done it, I think, in ways that aren't best for people. Like, so typically, the solutions I've seen in the market involve uh, someone having to code up a solution. So you, you'd have to go on a website and program up how your strategy should work, mm -hmm. and then they'll run it in the background and then feed you the investment advice. And that's, sort of, that's a barrier for entry for the people who don't have that experience and want to get into yeah. trading stocks and shares. Well, it's not only a barrier for them, it's a barrier for me. So my job was coding, but I didn't mm. have the time or inclination to right, learn sure. another language on a, a website just for this specific purpose. Mm. I thought it had to be something which does this without the need to do any coding. Mm. Um, the other type of solution in the market they do everything for you, but they don't give you that full control. You choose what kind of risk level you want to take, but then they decide everything else, basically. Right. So I, that also didn't appeal to me, because I wanted to make all the choices. I just didn't want to spend my whole life coding up and mm -hmm. doing this. Uh, so that's kind of the opportunity I saw. So I thought I could package this up, make it available in an app. And uh, that's where the idea came from. And then I decided to do that as a business. Mm -hmm. That's where I've got to today. So how is that different to you being able to buy stocks from different uh, companies instead of going for a package deal where you just choose a level of risk? So is that the type of um, modularity or personalization that you're talking about? It's the personalization. So <clears throat> what's different from existing solutions where you can just go and buy and sell stuff is that that is not based on analytics so much. I mean, it, it can be, but often it's based on just opinions or something you see in the newspaper. Or if it is based on analytics, it's very difficult to do the analytics properly or maintain it over time. So what I'm trying to do with this business is give people a framework to base that analytics on a kind of a professional standard. So it's people who want to make more analytical decisions rather than just emotional decisions in the stock market. This company you've got is Stratify, and yes. you've just raised 440000 through crowdfunding. Yeah. And how have you found that experience? It seems quite a, quite a step forward for the company. Yeah, yeah, it was a massive step forward. So um, I'll step back a bit. So I've told you how kind of where the idea came from. Mm -hmm. um, so I, to get to that step was kind of a, a, quite a few different things I had to do. Um, so the first thing was, at that point, it was just an idea, right? Mm -hmm. I, had to, I couldn't raise money just based on an idea. So this, I guess, is where kind of the, the PhD kind of skills come in again. I decided to just learn the most minimum I needed to to build a product mm -hmm. to show to investors. So I knew how to code up um, the strategies. That was kind of similar kind of coding to what I'd done in my job. But I also needed to display that nicely, so I had to learn a bit of web development and put them together. So mm -hmm. I was able to build a product which you could 
run a personalized strategy. You can define the criteria, run the strategy, and it displays the results in a website and emails you the signals of what to do every day. Um, but <clears throat> I also knew that just the product isn't going to be good enough. Investors, will, I watched a lot of Dragons then. Yeah. I knew they want to have a team and everything. So I brought on board um, uh, my co-founder, so Nikki Hawks, who is um, our growth lead. So I knew my one of my weaknesses is going to be kind of the outreach and marketing and, and uh, growth. Because so I needed someone to to help with that. So she's she's more of an expert on that. Mm -hmm. And we also got a developer at the time. And then we went over and and started talking to investors. So when we went to raise money on Crowdcube, which is a crowdfunding website, it was a big experiment at the time. We didn't. It was the first time we were going out to the public and telling people our idea, and we didn't know if it's going to be a massive flop or anything. Like, it's always a big risk at this point. Mm. Um, and uh, we went out asking for I think it was two hundred thousand pounds, and it was a great success in the end. It was a lot of work behind the scenes, mm. I have to say. Like it wasn't just like game for nothing, but um, we managed to raise this four forty, and yeah, we had. 700 investors in 53 countries and it was a great kind of experience just talking to people and a good validation of the idea as well so that kind of inspired us to take it forward to where we are now yeah. mm. so what's the timeline of that crowdfunding from when it started and were you also working for your other job whilst you were doing this? Yes, uh, so... So this was a side hustle at the moment? It's a side hustle, yeah. So I started the, we started the raise, I think it was about April last year and completed it in around um, August time. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of from idea to, there's a lot of preparation before you pitch uh, on the platform. So that, that was the period of time it took us to complete the raise. Um, and at the time, yeah, I was still working. So this is something I had to run by my company, make sure that they would um, be happy to, for me to do this. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I've spoke to the compliance department and there were certain <laughs> restrictions uh, placed on me and the business, mm -hmm. but I had to say they were very supportive and they were willing to let me go ahead, which I, you know, obviously very grateful for. Mm. And now that you've got that funding, what are the next steps for the company? Oh, so the next steps, this is the kind of exciting bit. So we're mm. just finishing off the actual development of the first product and aiming to launch that in the next couple of months. And uh, so, yeah, th this is kind of the exciting phase where we take it to market. Yeah, it now, now sort of becomes its own thing and then you can run with it from there. Yeah, so we have great plans for the future. We want it to be, you know the investing platform that everyone uses because mm -hmm. it's like um, any other investment platform. So you can just buy and sell stocks, but you also have this professional quality analytics to base your investments on if you want to use that. Mm. So it, the idea is to help people get confidence to make good quality investments. We're not looking to try and speculate and you know get into risky investments it's all about making solid foundations for your investments and how does that differentiate you from say your competitors like nutmeg so i mean there are a lot of different approaches i mean it's one of the biggest industries out there finance there's a whole spectrum so we fit 
probably somewhere in the middle. There are more vanilla kind of offerings where you just have the uh, the ability to pick stocks, but we feel that that doesn't give people you know, the, the necessary help they need. Because if you're faced with thousands of options, how are you going to pick the one that's right for you or the one that's best performing? Uh, and on the other side of the coin, you've got things uh, which are more risky. Um, I think uh, in the US in particular, you've got the ability to buy products which are uh, based on non- non-linear payoffs like uh, CFDs and options, which are not necessarily appropriate for retail investors because it's a complex product and people don't necessarily understand what they're getting into. Mm. So we're trying to do good quality, simple products, but well. Looking back on your sort of your career experience, what advice would you give to PhDs or undergrads who are interested in following a similar path, maybe going from a technical degree into finance or trying to take their PhD and commercialize it or become an entrepreneur themselves? I think uh, people should pursue anything they're interested in. There's no barriers, really. Mm. You know, if, if I don't think anyone should feel they've done a particular PhD, therefore they have to stay in that industry. I think life's all about experiences, you know, move around as much as you can and try, you know, it's an iterative, for me at least, it's an iterative process. I'm trying different things and then hopefully each one is closer to what you actually really want to be doing and enjoy the most. Mm. So really, it boils down to encouragement and just getting out there and, and giving it a go. Definitely, yeah. I've, uh, I can't tell you how many people told me not to try this because it's such a, like, you know, such a saturated market. You know, you've got no chance or there's people doing it already. People are usually wrong when they're telling you that. You should always try and do what you're interested in if you believe in it. A bit of a high-level question. Are you scared of failure? Good question. I mean, I don't want to fail. I don't think I'm scared of it. Um, I think most businesses fail. I think you have to start a business knowing that you're more likely to fail than succeed. Mm-hmm. So I think if, uh, if you're f- afraid of that, you probably would be worried about it all the time and not thinking about doing a business properly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's definitely a difficult one to answer. I, something I'm always thinking about, but I don't let it control anything we do. And does that go as well for your PhD? Did you ever think to yourself, I can't do this? Did you ever have to pick yourself back up? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Like, uh, first few years, I didn't have a clue what I was doing or how to achieve anything in the subject. I mean, I mean, just getting up to speed, I thought it was unachievable for a long time. Um, I think my supervisor actually helped me a lot to mm-hmm. keep going, because I, you know, probably without his help, I would have just given up, but... Uh, That's, um, you know, gone full circle to the first question of the interview with uh, resilience being uh, quite important. Mm. Yeah, but it's also PhD. important to recognise you can't always do everything on your own because even though I believe I built up a lot of resilience, like I said, I don't think I could have done it on my own without my supervisor mm-hmm. supporting me. Mm-hmm. So you need that network and it's kind of, you know, everything in life's a team effort. So 
Yeah, you, you, you do what you're best and then people help you along. Do you have a mentor figure, so someone equivalent to your PhD supervisor currently? So we have, um, we've got a few people actually. We've built up a team of advisors in the company and these are all hand-picked people mm-hmm. who we wanted to help us take the business forward because they're experts in their field in the industry. So our advisors are probably my mentor. Um, they're all, you know, leading business people and experts in specific fields, whether it's sustainability or business growth or operations or marketing, you know. So I constantly talk to them and, and get inspiration about how to take the business forward. Mm-hmm. And I suppose what's next for you now that you've tried so many different fields of uh, research and um, industries to work in? Yeah, no, good question. I think, uh, I feel like I've finally found what I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. So I would be very happy to just continue doing this. Like when you start a business, everyone's always asking you about your exit opportunity or your exit plan. How are you gonna sell the business and move on? I always tell people that's not my motivation. I'm not looking to do that. I know it's important to investors, so we obviously have a plan and we have opportunities there, but I'll be very happy if the business is carried on the next 20, 30 years and I'm, you know, continuing to help it move forward. Well, we'd be happy to have you back at the University of Bristol to hear how that goes. <laughs> yeah, no, it'd be great to probably be somebody else aside from us doing the interview, but it'd be really interesting to see where you are in, in 20, 30 years. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm kind of curious too. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, Daniel, for for giving your time today and giving us a really interesting interview. And yeah, we look forward to seeing where Stratify goes in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. This episode was brought to you by Claudia J. Martin and Matt Bone. The episode was edited and produced by Ivan Moraviev, Rachel Ward and Paul Spencer from the Bristol Doctoral College. We hope to see you again in the next episode.